Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. Dr Rachel Glanister is the Chief Economist of the UK Department of International Development. She has experience across the policy world, working in the Treasury and the IMF, as well as in academia, working as the Executive Director of JPAL, an organisation within MIT's Department of Economics, which is designed to promote the use of randomised control trials in economics, and several of its members were accredited with winning the Nobel Prize last year. We sit down with Rachel today to discuss development economics and what impact COVID will have. We hope you enjoy. Rachel Glaster, thank you very much for joining us today. How have you been adjusting to life under lockdown? It's tough. Um, I mean, one way I've been adjusting is just I've been working very long hours, but um, I try and get out and take a walk. Uh, That helps. I mean, so you've had a rich and varied career working in many places to be the dream of an LSE graduate. So the Treasury, the IMF, MIT, so on. Could you explain what made you choose each of those places? And then what was it that made you move on to the next? Uh, so I've always sought um, in every job I've done uh, a combination of kind of rigorous economics, but also being tied to very practical outputs that could impact people's lives. But I think it's also important to recognize when you start off as a student, you think you, know, you can plan your life. Uh, life doesn't really work that way. So I've moved around a lot, but a lot of that has been, you know, personal reasons. But when I've then, you know, when I've then looked for a job going, uh, I've always come back to this idea that what I want to do is something which is both rigorous economics, but also impactful. And I've been very lucky to be able to combine those. So I've done sort of rigorous research from the academic side and trying to get in into policy. And I've done, you know, worked on the policy side and tried to brought it, bring in rigorous economics into policy So it looks like a coherent plan at the end of the day, but I can assure you it wasn't as it happened. Um, And you've you've worked a lot in development economics, as you say, like in this nexus between the academic side and between the uh, policy side of things. So how do you see that field has evolved over the time that you've been in there? And then specifically, how has it came to to accommodate the randomised control trials that you yourself have um, championed? So, I mean, development economics is almost unrecognisable from when I was when I studied it at college. Um, it used to be quite a separate field from the rest of economics. And now I feel like it's right at the heart of, of economics and very much using all the same modern tools as the rest of economics, you know, from behavioural economics to randomised trials to big data. I mean, you really use the same tools in development as you do anywhere else now. Um, it's just the context and the questions that you ask that are different. Um, and that really wasn't quite the say it wasn't really um, as they say, it was more sort of off off the side using its own tools uh, when I studied it. Um, I mean, in terms of how to use it uh, as policymakers, um, you know, policymakers need to use all of those different tools, all of the different tools of economics. Um, and, you know, from using, getting just good data uh, and applying basic principles of economics actually gets you a long way. Um, in terms of RCTs, uh, you know, that's very much just one tool in the toolkit. That's how I've always thought about it, including when I was at j It was just a tool I specialised in. 
Um, I mean, the, the RCTs ask ask and answer very specific questions and they answer them very well, but they're quite specific. Uh, so the benefit is you can design them to answer very precisely the question that you want answered, but it's quite, you know, a specific question that you're ask, answering. So I basically, when I'm using all of these different tools uh, in policy work, I have a very simple framework, which is, you know, three, you need three things. You need to identify the problem. You need uh, local, which, you know, requires local data. You need to look at general lessons about human behavior that tell you kind of what kind of solution you might want to use to fix the problem. And then you need to understand implementation locally. Uh, so, you know, you might be, you know, want to do things very differently in Ethiopia or DRC, for example, because um, they have different problems. Right? Ethiopia may have a different problem that it needs to solve than DRC. So that's part of the difference. Um, uh, but then they also might have to be uh, implementing any solution in a very different way, in a way that works for them. Like Ethiopia is a very hierarchical, centralized place. DRC is much more decentralized. So the solution has to adapt to that local reality. So, so I see RCTs as helping to answer all three, diagnosis, general behavior, and implementation questions. I've seen RCTs that contribute to all three, but they're really about, when you get a set of RCTs, they're really about understanding general behavior. Why is it that you think that development economics has went from being this fringe thing to kind of incorporating little bits of the other economics as micro, macro, and so on? I, I mean, that's that's a hard question to answer. I don't know the counterfactual uh, of different, you know, what would have happened in different scenarios. I think to some extent there's an inevitable cycle in which parts of economics that have become more separated, people start to say, oh, well, what if we use these new tools in this, you know, other field? Uh, you say economists do that a lot within uh, you know, including in other fields that aren't even um, economics, they say, well, you know, we've got these cool tools in economics, let's use them somewhere else. And I think that's basically what happened both with RCTs, but also in terms of the change in what happened in development economics is, you know, someone tried out, people tried out using these tools and it seemed to work and then that got other people excited. I mean, I think an interesting thing that happened is that development economists started working really closely with NGOs on the ground and trying out different things. And that was a way of doing development economics that grad students could do. Uh, and so it attracted a lot of young people in to doing development uh, economics because there was a way to apply really cool new tools, but in a very, in a way that was kind of uh, very embedded and locally grounded. And that gave a lot of people a lot of, you know, sense that they were making a difference. You've talked about how the best way to design a randomized control trial is to have it testing some kind of abstract theory. Um, mm -hmm. it, this seems counterintuitive in that the strength of a randomized control trial is its specificity. Yeah, so... Um, the key to understanding what might seem like a puzzle there is that you never, as a policymaker, draw on one study. You should never do that. 
you always want to be looking at what does a whole field tell us? Uh, what are all the papers? What is all the data? What does all our institutional knowledge tell us about the problem? And what RCTs are good at doing is identifying causal relationships. And that is fundamental to understanding these sort of big drivers of human behavior, because you can observe lots of correlations, but if you don't understand what's causing it, it's very difficult to design new policies because you don't know whether when you change something, you will end up uh, getting a result uh, that you predicted. So correlations are good for describing, they're good for identifying problems, but you really need causation to think about, you know, what's really driving, what, what would what would happen differently. Um, and so that's where RCTs come in. So the best designed RCTs are ones that they're very embedded in their local context, but they also um, are trying to ask a fundamental question about human behavior. And they can be precisely designed to try and get at that to isolate that bit of human behavior from everything else that's going on. And then if you get enough of those, and they're all pointing in the same direction, then you can start to say, no, humans find this thing, you know, behave in this kind of way. So, you know, procrastination or, or some of the behavioral biases that we have worked on a lot in the last 10 years are an example of that. So it's a, you know, um, you know, uh, the idea of, uh, of you know, salience or the idea of uh, that we, you know, we have an exponential discounting gives us very precise uh, predictions, which we, if we take that theory and then we use an RCT to get to get at exactly that precise prediction and test that precise prediction, uh, that's when it can tell you a generalizable answer. Okay, so the notion is you want to test if procrastination occurs because all humans procrastinate, but you might test that, you know, you might offer lentils in India, but that wouldn't work so well in London. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the idea is that a small nug now helps people do things that are in their interest, but they might be procrastinating. And so the question is, why don't people... Um, why don't people get their kids immunized? Is it a deep uh, suspicion of the health system or is it just, you know, they just keep putting it off for tomorrow? Well, then if you offer them lentils, that's not enough to overcome a deep suspicion of the health system. It is enough to persuade them to do it today. So you talked a lot about the kind of policy experience on the ground and you're the chief economist of DFID. What is that role? What is it involved? What does your typical day look like? So I have I, the main the main thing I do as chief economist is is I serve as kind of with a small team. We serve as sort of internal think tank or challenge function. So we get to work on you know topical issues and come in and provide advice. You know everything from you know China's lending to Africa to you know how to answer COVID vaccine. So this is sort of flexible, moving around, working where where the department needs some some thinking. Uh, but other roles, so that's the main part of the role. But the other roles include uh, uh, 
being sort of a uh, quality assurance. We have a quality assurance unit. So we look at, you know, the spending of the department uh, and look at are we spending it in the best possible way? Um, and there's another team that, that, that looks at, reviews business cases. But in addition to just reviewing business cases, we have a role in, in sort of challenging the department of are you spending money in the best possible way in line with the evidence. And finally, I get to mentor and support the professional development of DFID's 165 accredited economists. So that's, um, that's a fantastic network. Um, and so I have a role in sort of being a, a, a leader for them, I'm not directly managing them, but a, a leader and, a, you know, support their professional development. You've talked a lot about the importance of field work while working in development, um, specifically yourself, having a lot of experience mm-hmm. in, say, Sierra Leone. How do you find, as a high-profile woman, uh, working on the ground in countries which lack the same levels of female empowerment as the UK? Yeah, so this is, I guess, probably most of an issue uh, in my work in Bangladesh, um, where I've done a lot of work on female empowerment, uh, but also those big issues of, you know, lack of female empowerment. Um, and I, I mean, I'm quite lucky there. In some ways, being a woman is an advantage. We always have to recruit women to do field work in our Bangladesh work because it's only women who are allowed to talk to women, to, you know, the particularly the adolescent girls that we started working with. They're now uh, young women, uh, but, and even so, they're, you know, low on the totem pole and there's a lot of suspicion about who can talk to them. So in some ways, it's an advantage when you want to talk to those groups to be a woman. You're invited in more easily. You're allowed inside the house. Um, in other ways, it's it, it's a disadvantage. I think it's particularly, pro- it's less of an issue now. Once you're kind of older and more senior, even in societies that aren't used to having women leaders, you know, you're coming from outside, you're coming with a certain amount of authority, they'll sort of, it's easier. I think where it's more of an issue is for young women um, who do have an issue uh, working in in many countries in, in development if they're trying to interact with senior politicians because it's a mix of the gender and working in a society that's very age-based. So, you know, senior people are all older. So the idea that, you know, a 25-year-old woman can actually uh, have something to tell them uh, is is more of an issue. Um, what, what do you think are some of the most successful policy initiatives that you've embarked upon in your time in DFID? So I think... Um, I can think of a number of ones, but I think I'm quite proud of the work we've done on taking the evidence from the academic field and making it usable for people, for for economists and policymakers within the department. Uh, And in particular, we brought a lens of cost effectiveness. So, you know, a lot of academics Papers will say, you know, well, this was very effective or this wasn't, but they're all individual pieces of work. Um, so what we try to do is take a body of work um, and not 
not just summarize it, but say, what are the key lessons that are coming out of this? And what does that mean for you practically on an everyday basis? And I think that's a role, as I've said, which I played at sort of many different levels throughout my career. Uh, but I think it's an absolutely critical role because it's not just about you know, taking the abstract and giving the top lines, but saying, what's really underneath that finding? And what's underneath that finding might have a more profound um, impact or profound lesson uh, across our whole portfolio. And how do we as different economists use that uh, in the kinds of decisions we're making? Because the kinds of decisions we're making don't fit exactly the context of that paper, uh, but they're related. And so, so that I've done a lot of work to take those bodies of work and sort of translate them into what does this mean for us? And that's everything from the education work that I'm very proud of within DFID uh, to some uh, work on China. Uh, you know, as I, I mentioned, work on, you know, China, um, China's lending to Africa. Uh, it was interesting how just taking a simple economics lens to the data about China's lending in Africa really put it in a very different perspective to the one, to the kind of hyper-political uh, way. I mean, in, in essence, China is doing in Africa exactly what, or indeed in the world, is doing exactly what you would expect of a country that has been running very large uh, current account surpluses and therefore has money overseas that it needs to put somewhere. You look at its entire portfolio, it looks like a sort of optimal portfolio allocation across countries. So, so that kind of taking something that's seen as political, putting an economic lens and saying, actually, you know, it's, it's just kind of economics 101. Uh, that's the kind of thing I really like to do. So one thing we've asked everyone in this series is the following quote. In 2006, Greg Mankiw, a Harvard professor, worked under George Bush, said, the sad truth of macroeconomic research the past three decades is it's had only a minor impact on the practical analysis of monetary or fiscal policy. So it's interesting hearing you say what you just did, because you're talking about you know, the things you're proudest of at DFID is kind of uniting that gap, the gap between practical analysis and and the day-by-day day of how it's done. So do you think that this is something you wish more fields of economics would do? So I think it, it, there is a particular issue, I think, going on in macroeconomics, and I think we're starting to see some move on it. But there was a move in macroeconomics to head off from kind of the practical daily questions that macroeconomists in policy deal with uh, and ask some very different sets of questions that kind of macroeconomists and policy couldn't really use very much. Um, and that that's example, what, that's, so thinking about, I mean, this is probably not, you know, in some ways, <laughs> I'm not best placed to speak to this because I, um, you know, it seems so different. I never really got to grips with it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'll give you a I'll give you I'll give you a specific example, uh, which is not very recent, because uh, I've mainly been a microeconomist for a while. But um, you know, policymakers are really interested in 
should the fiscal deficit be you know, 2% of GDP or 2.5% of GDP? Um, and most academic macroeconomists are not working on that sort of question. They're looking at, you know, kind of the game theory of, of central banks. Um, and it's not about, or, you know, this is some time ago, but does money, you know, does money have any real impact? Well, I mean, you know, if you're working in a field, you should assume that monetary policy does have an effect. The question is how much, you know, you've got to set an interest rate. What should it be? Not does the interest rate have any impact at all? So now asking those fundamental questions is really important, but, and in a sense, eventually academics gets to a point where it, um, you know, it comes up with something practical, but for many years it might be off uh, asking questions that don't seem to have much relationship. I think it's important to have some parts of the field that are very grounded in the questions that are on the ground. So you might have some theorists who aren't particularly thinking, is this relevant to the world uh, or to the everyday questions that policymakers are asking themselves? But it's good to have some part of the field, at least, that's really stuck in there, spending time on the ground with policymakers, understanding their problems, because you come up with all sorts of interesting questions, in my, in my experience, that you hadn't really thought of before, um, and that actually you can analyse uh, quite effectively. So I think development economics has really benefited from having this surge in work where people are on the ground every day. And I think of, you know, Pascaline Dupas spending uh, a long time, a couple of years working in Kenya. And she, kept, while doing that work, she came up with the ideas that, you know, then went on to make her famous because she's sort of observing people's behavior and asking questions about why are they behaving that way, um, which then turned into sort of very innovative uh, research because nobody had thought of that before because they hadn't really spent the time on the ground sort of looking at that particular issue. Okay, um, moving this then from a discussion of development economics kind of generally and in the abstract to something more specific to COVID-19. How do the challenges that COVID-19 poses to the developing world differ to the challenges that it poses to the developed? How do you envision for example, the German experience being different from the Ethiopian? So I've just come off a call um, in our, in, within DFID about whether the difference, whether there's a difference in how the disease is playing out in, in Ethiopia versus Germany, uh, just on kind of an epidemiological um, and I think there's still loads of questions there to be answered. Um, I think, but I think certainly at the moment, it's the case that the secondary impacts of COVID in the developing world are much worse than the primary impacts. So, you know, more people are probably going to die as a result of not getting immunizations or because of, you know, not getting enough food, which then makes them weaker for and more susceptible to other diseases. Um, 
than they are from COVID itself. And that's because they are more vulnerable or more, you know, any economic shock when you're poorer just push, you know, can push a lot more people over the edge. Um, and we've, you know, there's higher rates of um, infectious diseases people are. So if they don't get those immunizations, they're more vulnerable. Um, so, so I think that's a really important difference. Um, and just that people don't have the security and the savings and the options that we have to be able to, to combat the disease. And so, uh, you know, if they go into lockdown, the economic consequences are much bigger. And I think those at the moment, certainly they are dwarfing the direct impacts of the disease. We don't know how the disease is going to play out. Um, you know, it, that may flip. But at the moment, that's certainly the case. Whereas in you know, Germany and the UK, the economic consequences are severe, but people aren't dying of the economic consequences or not at anything like the rate that they are in the developing world. And in light of that, what does DFID do? Uh, we are thinking a lot about how to help countries design policies that uh, can minimise the economic impact. Um, so, you know, can you do smart, um, you know, smart containment? Um, uh, that's partly about just getting data, uh, helping them get data on, you know, where is the disease bad, who is suffering, so that they can help target uh, their interventions. When you have less money, you know, targeting becomes even more important. Um, so, you know, getting people data advice um, is is key, uh, and and we've had a lot of demand from developing countries to help with that, to think through how to design policies kind of on the run, how to incorporate data into what they make, what decisions they're making. It's also uh, DFID is also switching quite a lot of its aid budget to. Um, to focus on, you know, the immediate impacts um, of uh, of the disease in terms of, you know, the economic impact. So, you know, supporting humanitarian interventions and, uh, you know, supporting social protection. Um, not not always with huge amounts of money because our money is small compared to the amount that developing countries spend on poverty reduction themselves in their own countries, but a lot in terms of how can you, you know, how can you design it better? How does DFID prioritise different types of intervention? For example, how do you deal with a trade-off of, you know, on one hand, you just save a quantity of lives by putting in malaria nets, but on the other hand, you sit down with government officials and you talk to them about how they can better manage lockdown. So we've done a lot of work on uh, you know, cost effectiveness. And I think, uh, and then we also think about, so we use cost effectiveness analysis a lot uh, when we think about prioritization. And then we also think about what's the comparative advantage of the UK or DFID compared to other donors, um, because that's key. There's no point in giving advice about something you're not very good at. Um, I think in a lot of that, the most cost-effective thing that you can do 
is to help countries spend their money better. So aid is only ever a small proportion of the actual money that gets spent. But if we can bring our money to help countries spend their money better, that's one of the most effective things that we can do. So, you know, you said about malarial bed nets being cost effective. Well, you know, if we can work with a country in how to spend its health budget to prioritise malarial bed nets over, say, ventilators, if you're a poor country, um, that's actually going to have a bigger bang for the buck than simply paying for malarial bed nets. Sure. Um, now, but only if they're going to listen to you, though, you you know, you have to think. Uh, can you have influence where you have influence? Um, and, and often, if you want to have influence, you also have to bring some money to the table, too. Sure. Um, you're also working with the Gavi and doing a lot of work there pertaining mm -hmm. to COVID-19. So, so what's that? What does that look like? So DFID uh, in the UK is one of the biggest funders of Gavi. Um, Gavi is uh, you know, the vaccine alliance. Uh, a lot of what they do is just get routine immunizations out, but uh, you know, pay for the for the for the vaccines for the poorest countries, and then support those countries to get them out to people. Uh, but they've also done some innovative work on. Um, on how to stimulate the invention of new vaccines. And I was involved in their work many years ago on uh, to stimulate the, the, the creation of a pneumococcal vaccine that covered the strains of the disease that were prevalent in developing countries, but weren't so prevalent in rich countries. Um, and so we've been talking to them, but also many other people in terms of COVID and saying, well, what you know, what's the best way to accelerate a COVID vaccine? And the answer is it's a bit different from pneumococcus, actually. Um, the, you know, the, uh, so, you know, push incentives is when you pay for things up front, pull is when you pay if someone invents a vaccine. For a COVID vaccine, there's not really any problem that, that people want to buy it if it's created. The problem is that, firms will not build enough capacity, uh, you know, will have an incentive to keep capacity small and then that supply relatively small. Uh, and so people will fight over, you know, the, the vaccine that's produced. So we're recommending that we do all we can to kind of expand the ability to produce a lot of vaccine if and when something is invented. Okay, two questions to wrap up. Uh, first, what are some books that you think every undergrad economics student should read? Uh, yeah, so um, I actually mainly read articles, not books, uh, not economics books. Sorry. Um, so I, I was struggling with this, but I do think, so two books, are two economics books that I really like, and I think are really important, are Poor Economics and Scarcity. And I think what's good about those books is that they take really rigorous economics, but they really put it in the context of real life trade-offs. So it's not kind of, it is academic work, but you really feel uh, uh, what that means. They sort of really translate it into those results, into what that really means for everyday life for ordinary people. Um, 
And particularly scarcity is that people often think of behavioral economics as nudges, but there's a whole new wave of behavioral economics that goes way beyond nudging to think about sleep, deprivation, and alcohol and noise. And scarcity is sort of one of the, uh, you know, starts to get into some of those, which I think is really important. And then the other thing I would read that any uh, suggests that people read for anyone who is interested in going into development economics is to read about the countries they're interested in. So don't necessarily read economics. Read, um, uh, you know, if you're interested in a country, read the history, read the anthropology, read the fiction. So for me, you mentioned I work on Sierra Leone. So for me, you know, Paul Richards' anthropological work on Sierra Leone, so fighting for the rainforest, you know, the uh, Aminata Fauna's uh, novels about Sierra Leone. I love The Memory of Love, for example. So, so that's, um, you know, that's what I'd recommend, particularly if you want to get into development, is you need to be able to put yourself in the mindset and in the shoes of someone in a developing country. And that is really hard. So rather than just read the economics, read the anthropology, read the fiction, uh, and it will help you get into that mindset and understand the issues that you're trying to solve. And finally, what gives you hope? Development. I mean, there's just been unbelievable progress in development. So when I go to communities in Sierra Leone, um, you know, and my data is showing that 70% of people, uh, adults in the communities where I'm working, never entered a school. Like they have zero years of schooling. And yet almost all their kids are in school. Um, you know, maternal mortality is falling, like just absolutely almost everything in terms of human development and indicators has been improving dramatically. It's terrible, but we've seen huge progress, so we can make progress. And I think the human development side is really important because once people in developing countries have good human capital, you know, they can find the solutions for themselves. Like, you know, a good, healthy, educated community well, we don't know the answers, but they will if we give them the chance to, you know, learn and survive and um, they'll have the solutions. Dr. Rachel Glenister, thank you for your time. Thanks very much. Bye. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next time.